Welcome to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and Podcast on Radio Free Nashville, 107.1 and 103.7 and streaming live at RadioFreeNashville.org. I'm reminded every day that the meaningful work is mostly invisible, mostly quiet. Most people are not like loud about it. And Highlander is a place where I get to work alongside people who are committed to doing that work. That was Emma Cager Robinson. We're at a critical juncture right now. We're in the midst of several crises, a crisis of fascism, uh, environmental disaster that's looming over us, climate disaster. We let's, It's time to get serious. Let's get rigorous, right? It's absolutely essential that we are angry. But now we have to get strategic. That was Denzel Caldwell of the Highlander Center. And you will hear more from Denzel and his Highlander colleague, Emma Cager Robinson, about how to take on the establishment, how to take on and stop fascism, how to restore democracy. But first, my name is Jim Wolgamuth, and I'm here with fellow Vietnam veteran Harvey Bennett. We are members of Veterans for Peace. Veterans for Peace is an international organization of military veterans and allies whose collective efforts are to build a culture of peace, humanity, equality, and justice. Just go to veteransforpeace.org. This radio show and podcast is on stations across the country thanks to the Pacifica Radio Network. We're also on SoundCloud, Anchor Podcast, Spotify, and your phone podcast app. Just search Veterans for Peace, the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and Radio Free Nashville are supported in part by you, the listener, because it is you that keeps Radio Free Nashville going. And as a result, this radio show is picked up by the Pacifica Radio Network and we are heard across the country. So if you think this is important, just go to RadioFreeNashville.org, click on the donate button and keep Harvey and I on the air in every time zone. And if you support the work of Veterans for Peace, because we work hard, go to our site, at veteransforpeace.org. We've got a donate button there also. While the mainstream media, YouTube, Twitter, and other platforms are censoring voices of activism and dissent, we will continue to share those voices who stand up against the establishment, who stand up against the military, industrial, congressional, media, corporate complex, stand up for us, the global us. And today, we have two prime examples of people who are standing up for us. We have Emma Cager Robinson and Danzel Caldwell. They are both from the Highlander Center in Tennessee, both, both working to organize and make change and make a better world possible. With that, let's get going. Harvey, you did a great job in arranging these two young people coming on to show and tell and talk to, to us. Yeah. So. Why don't you introduce the audience to Highlander? Last week, we did a show on uh, Septima Clark. So <clears throat> we wanted to highlight her. So I called uh, Highlander, you know, elevate their profile. I know they're doing a lot of good work and uh, we need to help people uh, become more aware of that. We did a show, or maybe even a couple of shows uh, on Miles Horton. That was a number of years ago. Uh, who, you know, is still a lot of movement people don't seem to know who he is or who he was. So uh, we think he's so important in terms of his philosophy of change and how uh, prescient that was and how so many uh, movements have come around to, to similar understandings of what it takes to, to make change. So so we're real interested in hearing more about what the Highlander Research and Education Center is doing, since that's what they're uh, title is now uh, been Highlander Center. So so let's talk to our two guests, Emma Cager Robinson and Denzel Caldwell. <laughs> Why don't we start ladies first? Mm-hmm. Um, and Emma, just uh, introduce yourself, but I'm really curious how people get to Highlander. So my name is Emma Cager Robinson. I am the communications coordinator with Highlander Center. Um, I've been with Highlander Uh, It'll be three years uh, in March. And I found Highlander in a kind of a roundabout way. Um, I was in a in a leadership cohort with Song, uh, Southerners on New Ground. And one of the uh, participants in the cohort is our current cultural organizer. And so I met Janae before I knew what Highlander was. This was 2019. And uh, I spent the entire year going back and forth between Austin and uh, Atlanta as a part of that cohort. I think we did like four trips and watching the way that she could kind of 
I hate to use this language, but the way that she could like control the energy of a room um, and then watching the way that she was like really invested in helping people learn and making learning fun. I thought that that was just really impressive. I had never met anyone like that. And I had been involved in organizing since 2017, um, like professionally, but did sex worker organizing in 2010 and then moved to the desert and worked with folks from the Tejano Ono Nation. Um, and then when I got back to Dallas, I tried to do like little organizing things here and there and got a nonprofit job and moved into uh, this world from retail work um, after attempting to organize my coworker, <laughs> not realizing how almost dangerous that is. I didn't think it was a big deal. I was just like, we're in the break room. How much do you make? <laughs> how much do you make? How long have you been here? And not thinking about organizing, just thinking of it as like, we should all have a better workplace. We should all have a better experience. Yes, we fold t-shirts, but it doesn't have to be shitty. Like, why does it have to be terrible? <laughs> and so- um, found organizing work and I came into organizing work through reproductive justice um, and kind of lived in that world. And that's how I got linked up to working with Song. And Janae mentioned that there was a digital uh, strategist role at Highlander in like the end of 2020 when I was quarantining in my house, being a sad boy and when she sent the information for the role, I remember looking at it and being like, wait, this place is exactly what I have been seeking, a place to learn, but also to be among people who are excited about learning, excited about organizing, excited about dreaming of what a different world would look like, and also like interested in actively practicing that. And so Highlander is one of those places, like, I think people say this a lot, but like Highlander is one of those places where it's 100% true. You really don't understand what Highlander is until you are at Highlander. Um, I had a whole different orientation, my my orientation, my posture toward the role, but also toward organizing shifted once I actually visited the Hill and saw not only like my coworkers in person, because I had not met my coworkers. Visiting the Hill the first time was like eye-opening. I think I walked around the Hill just like listening to gospel music and like feeling emotional because I come from a family of organizers and my mom, she's the first person that I remember watching organize people. She had a group called At the Kitchen Table in the early 90s. It was just for Black women living with HIV in Dallas, Texas. And going to those meetings and watching how being in proximity to each other, creating community with each other, sharing resources, showing up for each other in practical human ways changes the trajectory of people's lives that was what I, I felt when I was at Highlander. I remember thinking like, oh, this is the kind of organizing that my mom was doing, like meeting people who are moving work in small but really, really critical ways in the places where they come from, um, meeting people from the Knoxville Tenants Union and like meeting people um, through the uh, solidarity uh, squad ship that um, Denzel and April, shout out to April, brought to the Hill um, meeting folks who are not like the blue vest, like blue check girls, like not famous, not trying to get famous. That is a critical point. Not trying to get famous. <laughs> really trying to make sure that like, even if no one else knows who they are, their next door neighbor's lives are better because they exist. Those kinds of people truly cracked my world open in a very real way. And I feel deeply grateful for getting to know these amazing radical people, but also I feel really grateful for the kind of, how do I phrase this? I'm trying to be diplomatic. Um, deeply grateful for like the fact that this institution, even with all its flaws, has brought these amazing people together who are deeply passionate about what a different world could look like. Um, because like the institutions that that house 
our work and the systems that we live inside of are what they are, but these people are amazing. And so like, um, I feel very like inspired and like uh, humbled that I get to work alongside such brilliant organizers. And it's also just a, a really dope reminder. I'm reminded every day that like the meaningful work is mostly invisible, mostly quiet. Most people are not like loud about it, but like making sure your neighbor has that $20 that they need so that they can get to work or Mm -hmm. making sure that we call the city so that we can get the street fixed because we have an elderly neighbor who can't get out of her house and has not left her house in weeks or making sure that she has groceries, making sure that we feed each other on holidays. That's the work that keeps us alive, especially as Southerners. Our lives are so intimate and so uh, intertwined in these really beautiful ways. Um, and Highlander is a place where I get to work alongside people who are committed to doing that work, which is amazing. Denzel. So my name is Denzel Powell. I am uh, the uh, representing the economics and governance team um, or the depart uh, in the education department here at Highlander. Um, I also go by the uh, electoral justice researcher and educator for some. And yeah, like for me, my introduction to Highlander uh, was through a few comrades that I knew uh, when I was organizing with the Nashville chapter of Black Lives Matter. And just to kind of give you context to how I end up in the economics and governance department, I was studying econ through undergrad and uh, eventually grad graduate school. And Dr. King is actually the reason I even studied economics. Um, so when I was back at Morehouse um, and I was trying to figure out what major I wanted to major in, uh, we just so happened to have a King archive. And a lot of his published and unpublished works were in that archive. And I just so happened to walk in there one day when I was trying to figure out what I was going to do for my sophomore year moving forward. And I read a couple of his unpublished papers uh, of when he was in Chicago and he was talking about some of the economic uh, strife that a lot of people, uh, working class people were dealing with there. To be honest, it just sounded like he was talking about now, right? And so when I thought about that, I was like, well, why don't I study uh, like economics and try to understand how these structures work and maybe figure out a way to utilize that for for movement. That kind of guided my my learning trajectory. And so when I started organizing with BLM National in 2016, you know, going to grad school, University of Oklahoma, then came back home in 2018, jumped back in with the chapter. I was like, I really want some like organizer training. Like I got thrown into the fire and we're doing direct actions. I'm I'm learning things on the go. That's great. But like, I really want to get some formalized training. And so a couple of my folks, shout out to Rihanna Anthony. They were just like, look, you know, there's this place called Highlander where like you can get that type of training. Um, and my first training was actually the Rage, Hope and uh, Fire training. And that wasn't until like 2019. So it was there that I met at the time, David Ferris, um, who was uh, then uh, part of the economics and governance team um, during that workshop. And so got to know them. I was talking to them about what my interest. And they were like, hey, you know, we have this program, uh, this trainer trainer program for our um, mapping our futures curriculum, our solidarity economy uh, curriculum. You should you should apply. You should do it. And it's like. Hell yeah, let's do that. Like, mm-hmm. that sounds really dope. Like, I, I, you know, I've been studying econ. I, I I see it for the propaganda machine that it is to justify status quo, justify the existence of capitalism. And you mean to tell me there's a whole, like, archive or a whole curriculum where I could be trained in, like, alternatives? That's dope. And so I went through that. I led a couple of workshops, even initiated one with the Memphis BLM chapter. And uh, just through some connections of my comrades there, including my fiance, who was one of the founders of that chapter. And so, yeah, from there, uh, it, it like 2020 comes up. Things are things are happening with the George Floyd uprising. And so then I talked to Dave and Dave's like, well, hey, you know, there's a position opening up for the uh, economics and governance team. You should consider applying. Went through the uh, interviews, the ringer. 
Um, I was brought on to focus particularly forms of electoral justice, um, but still within the context of solidarity economy, right? And so since then, uh, like March of 2022, it's been about three years, or 2021, it, it's been it's been an experience. It's definitely been an experience. I not only get to do a lot of work and engage a lot of folks uh, around solidarity economy through things like the Solidarity Squad Ship, but I also get to uh, explore and do work in the realm of electoral justice and how folks can think differently about how we can build, shout out to Emma for this phrase, uh, what I like to call insurgent democracies. And this is something that yeah, I'm very excited to talk about as well, especially uh, as we go into an election year. And a lot of people are asking questions, like a lot of people, you know, whether we're talking about the genocide, whether we're talking about a lot of other things that people are fed up with. What does it look like to actually build uh, something new, like an actual democracy instead of what we have now? And so some of my work is attempting attempting to equip people to answer that question and experiment with that. So insurgent democracy, you know, that that hit me quick. Kind of describe that. OK, yeah, yeah. So, um, again, I have to I have to shout out to uh, Emma for coming up with this brilliant brilliant um terminology here because i was looking for a way to talk about um just ways that southern folks can wrestle with this question of how do we build power beginning at the local level understanding that we're caught in this duopoly um that that is governed by corporate interests right and so part of where this come part of the thinking um and part of the inspiration was looking back to the past, right? So I'm thinking about the citizenship schools that existed throughout the South. Um, I'm thinking about the Lowndes County uh, Freedom Party. um, And I'm thinking about the ways in which they were really trying to deeply engage with folks as they were organizing on not only how the structure worked, right? So not your, not your, not Mm -hmm. another schoolhouse rock lesson, right? But it was trying to get people to understand that through the lens of people who that structure didn't work for, right? And getting them to think, well, okay, if we think about ourselves as a self-determined people, what does it look like for us to begin to organize around a particular political objective or in the long term building a democracy that actually allows us to materially determine our, our futures, right? And so this this work that I'm doing, particularly with what I like to call critical civics, is 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 attempting to help people think about ways to build that insurgent democracy. Right. So, yeah, we, we are going to talk about the branches of government, but we're going to do it in a way to where we're thinking about, OK, who holds power here? Right. Yeah, sure. I can tell you about the uh, city council or the judges and the mayors and their departments and how to get there. But. How is power exercised in your area, right? Like, who actually is determined calling the shots here? Is it is it a sheriff? Is it a CEO um, of a particular uh, company that is you know twisting arms and playing and playing a heavy role in how city council legislates or the executive orders that the mayor pushes? Like, where is that? And then. Hopefully from there, we can uh, leave people with the question, how do we then organize with that understanding to uh, create a power structure beginning at the local level that will allow us to shape um, what happens um, in terms of in terms of uh, our, our policies and things that become law? You know, when I think you're organizing, I immediately think of a union. Do you work with uh, non-unionized people and, and uh, try to help them? understand how and and why a union would be a, a way for them to actually empower themselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. Shout out to my union, Highlander Workers United. Uh, you know, like we, yeah, like this, this is meant to uh, cast a deep, a deep net uh, here that includes folks who may be organized or um, who aren't, right? And I- I'm glad you brought up unions because like this, especially in this moment where we're starting to see an uptick in union membership in spite of 
you know, like the doubling down and right to work laws in spite of a lot of growing um, sort of uh, not only resentment, but organizing around our working conditions. I think it's really important to lift up institutions like unions who many of whom have had very radical militant interracial um, <laughs> like pasts, right, that are intentionally erased from our our history books. Right. And so that vehicle is definitely one that like we love to bring up when we're talking about these insurgent democracies. Right. Because it's it's proven to have been a political vehicle for workers, but by extension, people in com uh, various communities to to create a democracy amongst themselves. So it's important for us to like really think about the way that we are organizing folks as us intentionally creating insurgents. The reason why Denzel and I even arrived at that language was because we were thinking about like, yes, we have a responsibility to be like organizing folks wherever we are, but we have to be thinking about that as like very serious work because like we are creating people to like go into different places because I genuinely believe that like if we do want a new world then we have to figure out ways to radicalize everything that we do so like if you're a used car salesman you got to figure out a way to do that that doesn't harm people <laughs> like if you work for the power company and the power company needs to figure out a way to deliver energy to people's homes and not also be like fleecing them and like providing a terrible service for some people but good service for other people like we have to figure out a way to like make those things not so harmful. And the way to do that is for us to create insurgents, for us to be like equipping people to be able to see a different world so that they can actually live into that different world. So to me, like the insurgent work is like very, very important. So okay. thank you. What are you doing with, with young folks? Teddy and Rosemary, our Seed to Fire coordinators are actually the most engaged with the work with like young folks and then there's shares our Crippen who leads the children's justice camp so they kind of handle the pipeline of like children's justice camp which is our younger kids i don't think that young folks like to be called kids younger <laughs> folks very younger folks yeah um, camp that we do in the summertime that's going to be july 10th through the 22nd if i'm not mistaken um this year and they have like a pipeline almost of of work that kind of trains the younger folks to teach each other, um, which is why their camp is so long because the older young folks, the older youth arrive early so that they can get their lesson plans together and like plot out how they're going to lead sessions and workshops, what kind of workshops they're gonna do, what they're gonna be focused on. And then the rest of the youth arrive and then they, the the youth teach the youth. Um, so Cherzar um, leads it, but like the youth administer the like lessons, which is really dope. And then from there, they move into Seeds of Fire, ideally, where um, teenagers into, I think it's like 24, 23, 24 year olds, um, they then repeat that process where they teach each other and they have leadership cohorts and they really build each other up so that they are ready to move into the larger like Highlander body. And so there's a long standing pipeline because Children's Justice Camp is 40, 50 old. It's it's a old program. Oh. They've mm -hmm. been doing that for a very long time. So there are a lot of kids that came out of those programs that then moved into Seeds of Fire, that then moved into larger like organizing um, coalitions and into orgs and into uh, different work. And we're really lucky that we come from kind of just as Southerners, I think you end up in very like intergenerational worlds anyway. I was raised around my granny, my cousins. Um, when they started having kids, I got to know their kids. Uh, the kids from the neighborhood would come by like you end up in these very intergenerational worlds anyway. And so kind of harnessing the energy of young folks is is like critical work that happens at Highlander. And we are like just stewards of these young people because the work is actually like their ideas, their brilliance. And Highlander ideally 
is creating a space for them to really like flourish and like dig deep and like, do you want to do documentary work? Do you want to study your folks? How can we support that? How can we put resources into that? Um, and then putting them into the world like little insurgents. <laughs> so, now, how old are the kids? CJC is young. Those are very young, young folks. Um, so sub 10, they have some really oh. young folks. And then Seeds of Fire caps at around 24, 25. How do you <laughs> advertise to find kids to come? So, I mean, there really is an active pipeline. Um, and so there are a lot of kids that like, We'll come because they went last year. We'll come because they know a kid that went um, and their parents found out what it was and then approved them to be able to go. But I also, I know Sherzar has connections to a lot of like young folks, a lot of places where young folks are. And so they're able to really figure out like, how can we get these young folks into the room? And when when is this? When is this workshop, this training, this camp? Children's Justice Camp this year is July 10th through the 22nd. Did the kids spend the, spend a night? Did they get housed? or? Yes, they stay on the hill. And so okay. like an opportunity to be with each other in a real intimate space, but also like experience nature at a, at a scale that I, I, I hadn't when I was that age. I had no concept of like 167 <laughs> acres of land that you can just roam that was not real to me. So like, it's a really dope experience. I think they used to do a fair amount with immigration. Do you have immigrant organizing or, or work, work people who focus well, the, on immigrants? One of the leads of Seeds of Fire is actually an immigrant. So Rosemary is, is deeply like locked into those communities and has actually connected us with those communities, both in, um, Knoxville. Um, she also has connections in Atlanta, um, but she lives in Knoxville. Okay. And so she works with those groups uh, quite a bit. You uh, create workshops. What's that process? Do you think, well, I got an issue. Let's create a workshop. Or do you listen to what people w want and then you create a workshop? The The source of the, um, or the impetus for a lot of the workshops comes from the ground. Right. So this is based on either conversations that we have with our folks connected through the network, um, through their front lines, through any of the communities that we're directly engaged with, you know, or our organizing work that we do ourselves. Right. Because, um, you know, I'm doing work here in Nashville. And so that is kind of the basis for our analysis, sort of our regional analysis and what determines the the focus of the workshop right you know part of the work that i'm doing now comes from a lot of conversations across the south where they're like hey we we see fascism accelerating right um for a long time we see the right consolidating power some of us have read project 2025 and see the sporadic violence that that has uh, been ongoing but has accelerated throughout the region but we really want to get grounded in not only how these structures work, uh, but in a way that will allow us from a leftist lens to figure out ways, what can we do in these uh, halls of power to the extent that we can? And then how can that inform some of our larger like base building grassroots, grassroots work, whether we're in a policy battle or not? Mm -hmm. Right. And, and so Denzel, um, yeah. I'm sorry. And I want to let the audience know that we're having a discussion with two of the Highlander staff, Denzel Caldwell and Emma Cager Robinson. So uh, explain, not every one of our listeners knows what Project 2025 is. Yeah, not, not a problem. So since Reagan, the Republican Party, the, the right, uh, polit U.S. political right wing has issued different mandates or essentially that which are these books that uh, lay out the strategy of the GOP for the next couple of years, right? This is, uh, this started since like 1987. And so as of recently, um, I think this Project 2025, just titled Mandate for Leadership came out in 2023, I believe. 
and this is just essentially laying out what the rights agenda at, at every level is going to be for years to come, right, as they're gaining power. And so particularly when it, uh, when it comes to Project 2025, their whole agenda is deregulation. You know, it's nothing, it's nothing new. If you know anything about how the right works, they, they're going to find every way to shrink any sort of oversight, especially the federal government. But they're doing it in a way that is trying to oppose big tech, who they view as a enemy of the state, <laughs> vis-a-vis TikTok. Um, and, you know, this is when you get into a lot of red scare language about China. They are seeking to take a lot of power out of the federal agencies that currently exist under the executive branch at every level. And uh, they are trying to roll back, of course, any basic uh, <laughs> rights that have been entrenched since the 60s, whether we're talking about any sort of like guardrails to prevent voter disenfranchisement to any uh, what little protections there are for queer and trans folk and definitely want to like claw their teeth into any sort of uh, right to work laws to, as a way to combat this growing uh, unionization effort. And, you know, the list goes on, but it's it's across the board. Mm-hmm. And that's deregulation unless you're a woman, because they're more right. than happy to regulate the woman's body or exactly. a library because they're more than happy to regulate what books go in there. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's the central theme of Project 2025. Like their whole thing is, you know, this right wing language around protecting the nuclear family and quote unquote American values. And so part of the way they do that is they want to regulate women's bodies. They want to attack and defund uh, libraries and other educational institutions that encourage critical thinking, that don't encourage Christofascism. They're, they're looking to attack various pillars of society or any sort of sort of like momentum that has been built to combat fascism, for lack of better terms. I can ask about the... Uh... Something I read in there about stopping fascism and uh, applying pressure at the federal level. <laughs> I think at the federal level right now, fascism is becoming more the uh, rule <laughs> than the exception. So, you know, and to go right along and maybe give a specific, um, I was at that rally today calling for a ceasefire. And, you know, Biden is ignoring. So, what would Highlander do as far as, yo, Joe, come on, uh, pay attention to us? Yeah, yeah. So so this is this is one of those moments where, again, it's 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 twofold. Uh, it is really taking like things like our critical civics workshop and our people practicing power workshop as we get close to the November election. And as we're talking to people about the federal election, what the executive branch can and can't do, right? We're we're also equipping people with the ability to say, hey, you, I see you out there on the streets calling for a ceasefire. We see you out there looking for ways to, to agitate and to get Joe Biden to, to do what he needs to do. Well, as we get to November, these are the ways that you can continue to apply that pressure as crunch time gets here, right? This is also one of those moments where we're calling on our partners because, you know, we have a lot of folks throughout the ecosystem that have been engaged in this work for a long time. So shout out to folks like the M4BL and many other um, sort of like uh, institutions that are trying to put people in power that will be adjacent or in close proximity to, uh, to Biden to place pressure on them. Right. And so that's kind of what our our work looks like. Um, you know, we're we're making sure we're like um, really developing the roots, like, again, mass education, not only like before the election, but beyond. Right. Because insurgent democracy building is not going to come at one, you know, at the ballot office. It's going to take time. I um, mean, we have to equip folks to be able to do that work. But also it's it's also, uh, you know, supporting our, our uh, ecosystem comrades whenever they're getting into office or when they're 
you know, trying to set a policy agenda that's going to be able to apply pressure at the federal level to get a ceasefire and something even even greater than that. All right. Um... So I live in New Orleans. To me, the situations are pretty similar everywhere. Our <laughs> representation is questionable, too. <laughs> mm-hmm. So um, but I think that like what my work is kind of rooted in. So Denzel is using um, Project 2025 and I am using a book that I actually got from the that little library. Remember the first time that we went to that library and raided it and got mm-hmm. all those books. Um, I'm actually using that John Birch Society uh, document, the <laughs> notes from the 1966 Ooh. John Birch Society um, yeah. meeting. Because in my head, I'm thinking like about the way that culture changes um, and about the way that on the one hand, we absolutely will need like critical civics programs and things of that nature to equip folks for the work that will be happening in the political arena. But none of that happens without culture change. I think that they both uh, work hand in hand. And so a lot of the communications department's work right now is actually in creating third spaces, specifically because I was reading about uh, the way that the Christian nationalist movement kind of grew in Southern California. This this is probably so random, y'all. I, I promise I'm going to make a point. <laughs> so random is good. What that happened um, <laughs> was through having consciousness raising groups um, mm-hmm. in the suburbs uh, in Orange County, uh, where there weren't really a lot of spaces for people to gather. People started having consciousness raising groups around issues that were important to them. Those issues just happened to be terrible and so but people get addicted to doing something in person like people get addicted to doing something together um and so those movements grew because people consider consciousness raising groups almost as like their social outings um, because they didn't have any anything else to do together um and it bonded them together and so they also realized that like wow we didn't know we had this much power together which is to me the goal of like what we're doing right now. So we have a standing uh, film series um, in Tennessee in Knoxville right now um, that is deeply informed by the way that like folks will just come up to us and kind of like tell us about what it is that they want to learn about, what they want to watch um, and what they want to have access to. Um, and so, for example, the the first screening, well, we screened Out of Place, uh, Memories of Edward Said, um, because folks were trying to understand kind of the roots of Orientalism a little bit um, and understand where some of the like scripts that we have about uh, the Middle East and about uh, that part of the world come from as Southerners. Um, but at that screening, um, we met a bunch of young Palestinian activists who were like, hey, have you ever seen a film called Battle of Algiers? And I was like, no. <laughs> so I looked it up and they were like, we we want to see this film. And so that was the next film we screened um, because they told us that that's what they wanted to see. <clears throat> and after that, uh, a bunch of folks hit us up and we're thinking about the book Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. Um, and I'm fact- reading it now. It's an amazing book. I've, I've re- I'm on my third read right now. It's wow, it's amazing. Um, but they were thinking about the fact that that film was only screening at one theater, um, and it had like one showing a day. Um, it had a very limited release, but it's an incredibly important film origin. And so uh, I saw because, the movie too. That's why yeah, I got the book because people wanted to have access to it. I was like, okay, well, let's screen that. But the reason why those to me are like really important spaces because they're free. Um, We don't charge anyone anything to come to the screenings. We also don't charge people anything at the snack bar um, because third spaces need to be free. We need third spaces where people can just come and learn and be with each other and not have to worry about the like economic um, buy-in, just show up. And so from that, we thought about it and like we love Knoxville and we love that we get to be kind of like a, a... in an important like piece of the like culture that is like happening in Knoxville. Shout out to Central Cinema. Shout out to Nick the Doll. But 
we also were like, well, what if we did this across the South? And so now we have a series that is also live in New Orleans um, with a place called the Material Institute, which is kind of a smaller folk school in line with our values dedicated to the Lower Ninth, dedicated to making sure that people get to access these dope resources. Um, and because that is a different demographic, uh, we are screening different films. So the first one was A Place of Rape. And specifically because of June Jordan's very prescient, very thoughtful, but also very um, understanding that like our futures are really inextricably intertwined. Sorry, Emma, I thought I heard Jim Jordan, but I now know it's author and poet June Jordan. Please go ahead. And Palestinian women's lives, Palestinian people's lives. My life is impacted by whether they have quality of life. My life is impacted by whether people can raise their children. My life is impacted by whether people have clean drinking water. And understanding that and like wanting to, wanting to make sure that people get to kind of like learn together. And so creating another free third space where people get to show up, learn, talk through the film, talk through the ideas presented, and then like eat for free, gather. Um, so we have that. And then we also have uh, coming up, we have a couple of them in Texas, actually. So we're moving from Tennessee to Louisiana and now to Texas in March. We have two of them, one in Austin, one in Dallas. Um, and hoping to like move this across the South, move this like energy of creating spaces for people together, creating communal spaces, creating consciousness raising spaces where people get to not only learn together, but also leave with marching orders um, so that people are aware of like at the New Orleans, the first New Orleans screening before we left, uh, one of our elders was like, so there's an election coming. <laughs> So mm -hmm. this is where um, you can find election info. This is where you can find your polling places. But also, um, these are the groups that have uh, important stuff coming up. This is the the uh, Palestinian write-in that we're doing. Um, this is the march that's happening. Um, these are ways for you to actively plug into your community because the people in this room, you think the people in this room are so radical, but you're in this room too. Also, these people just look like people, which means that like the next time that you're around other people, you can presume that those people are just as radical as these people. <laughs> and also like create those consciousness raising spaces modeled off of um, what we understand from the like second uh, wave of feminism and from the uh, civil rights movement, um, things that we have been doing for a long time. Like you can do this yourself as well. It's an intentional effort to mm. demystify what organizing looks like because I mm. genuinely believe most of us are organizers. Most of us have gotten people together to do something, even if it was just a trip to Miami. Getting five people to pay for their tickets and pay for their hotels and show up on time to get to Miami is more organizing work than most of us <laughs> will do for like a march. And both of those things are very mm -hmm. important. So <laughs> we need to figure out how to put that same energy into like getting each other together for a march, getting each other together to um, donate food, getting each other together to mm -hmm. take our neighbors, take care of our city, take care of our region. Tennessee, the, the state, the state legislature, okay. the governor, uh, since fascism is on our minds, um, tell us about Tennessee and um, if your work is, is, local at, or, or where where else you're seeing situations like we have in Tennessee? If, you know, a lot of people talk about Florida or, you know, if Florida, if Florida um, I'll say this, Florida is the international epicenter of this right-wing coalition that we're seeing. But I think Tennessee is the domestic epicenter of this coalition of the consolidation of right-wing power. Why do I say that? A couple reasons. Um, so, you know, like some other states, we have a super majority, right? Uh, again, keeping uh, in context, Project 2025, 
you know, especially if you listen to the state of the state with um, Governor Lee, you know, the name of the game is deregulation. You know, school vouchers, trying to make that a thing, you know, taking away more red tape for a lot of large corporations like Amazon and so many others to, you know, <laughs> continue buying out uh, real estate and property throughout the state. In addition to that, um, it's it's multifaceted, right? A lot of right-wing pundits have moved to Tennessee, particularly Nashville. Candace Owens, Jason Whitlock, Tommy Lauren. Like, and then on top of that, you know, Core, Core Civic, the uh, private prison company is headquartered in Nashville. And then also, too, like, you know, you're, you have a lot of, even outside of the the... Legislative halls, you have a lot of activity of consolidated activity of various uh, white supremacist militia groups throughout Tennessee, you know, especially in East Tennessee, but it's not exclusive to that. Um, And then, of course, we can't forget the attempt to expulse Justin Jones and Justin Pearson. uh, Right. And so I, I think that whatever you see happening in Florida, is something that, yeah, of course, is is something that's trying to reverberate throughout the the states, but something that you could also look at to get an idea of what's happening internationally, especially in South America. But I think if you really want to get deep into how that right-wing strategy manifests uh, in the states or seeks to manifest itself in the state, you just look no further than Tennessee, right? Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause, cause, yeah. <laughs> and we're yeah, under the radar. That for a long time. <laughs> yeah, we're under the radar. I mean, people yeah. automatically talk about Alabama or Florida right. um, or even Louisiana. Yeah, but, they, yeah. Tennessee is one of those border states, right? And we actually have yeah. fought for the Union in Tennessee. <laughs> and, but, and, think, and, and think about it too, <laughs> geographically, right? If you think about places like Nashville, Nashville in so many ways is like a gateway into the rest of the South, right? You got, you, you know, you go, you take that interstate, you can go down to Atlanta, you have to Georgia, then you can go to Alabama. Yeah, Birmingham, Mississippi, right? And so, like, I think that you there's a reason why we're seeing that concentration of or sort of like this building of a super headquarters in so many ways in Tennessee in particular for the right that we're not necessarily seeing elsewhere. Now, I'll say this. With that, I don't think it's also a coincidence that, you know, there was a article that came out and said that Tennessee was the fastest, had the highest rate of union um like you know membership uh you know although you know we got a long way to go right they did see the the highest it's the highest rate of increase of in union membership despite us recently in the last midterm election entrenching right to work laws into our state constitution folks still are interested in in getting into you know unions and stuff because again what like what other vehicles right now Outside of just base building organizations, do we have to where we can roll some of this stuff back and have a fighting chance? So, yeah, it'll it'll be it'll be very interesting to see what what Tennessee does, because what Tennessee is doing is going to travel, you know, from, mm-hmm. so, you know, you got Florida internationally and you got Tennessee. It's going to travel through Missouri. It's going to go through Texas. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I, I would encourage people, you know, listeners um, and, and folks even outside, you know, again, oh, let's let's look at Florida, of course, but y'all definitely don't want to uh, take your eyes off of Tennessee. That's right. And, uh, you know, Tennessee was also the birthplace of for-profit medicine hospitals. Yes, HCA. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, yeah. They, they pioneered that when at a time when the idea of becoming, you know, billionaires off other people's misfortunes was not accepted as uh, okay, but they they've managed to turn it into socially acceptable behavior. <laughs> exactly. But, so to all my um, like you know like folks who are fighting for Medicare for all, universal yeah. healthcare system, hey, like bring that energy towards HCA. They're headquartered here, right? You know, yeah. like um, you know, there's there's plenty plenty of reasons to pay attention to t- Tennessee in this moment. The consequences it's had for. Healthcare in much of Tennessee is very rural, and more rural hospitals have closed in Tennessee than any other state, I believe, partly because they were all taken over by HCA or uh, similar for-profit groups, and they 
saw that they weren't making enough money on them, so they... Well, one second. I wanted to ask, does Tennessee have the same issue with Catholic hospitals that uh, Texas has? Where in rural areas, um, Catholic... Oh, yeah. They they will not perform for women who don't want to be have more children. They won't do any surgery. They will also actively deny you care if you come to the hospital and you are... If, yeah. Or in need of any care that would uh, potentially harm the child, they will not perform that care. But hey, you know, maybe, hey, I don't know if y'all saw recent news, but maybe, you know, they might do a slight discount on uh, feminine hygiene products. Like, you know, like that, that's <laughs> going to balance it out, right? You know, that that was that recently uh, came on the floor. And then allegedly, um, you know, there's a bill on the floor about raising the minimum wage, but again, we're in a super majority of GOP, so I don't know how far that's going to go, but... Emma, you've brought up the South several times, but the North needs some of this too, doesn't it? I mean, I think that what is real is that so goes the South, so goes the nation. Um, So if we are intentional about creating like the kind of movement that we need as far as combating fascism, the North will benefit. So the South is the fascist challenge. We're at a critical juncture right now. We're in the midst of several crises, a crisis of fascism, uh, environmental disaster that's looming over us, climate disaster. We, you know, uh, a matter of uh, bodily autonomy, um, there's a variety of crises, you know, all induced by, you know, capitalism, white supremacy, patriarchy, ableism, right? And it's, it's time to get serious. Let's get rigorous, right? It's absolutely essential that we are angry, but now we have to get strategic, right? So that means, you know, finding an organization um, that is going to allow you to deepen your uh, political education and develop an analysis about what's happening around you for you to plug into the work that you need to plug into in order to contribute to the pushback against these systems of oppression and these crises. There are many ways to do that. And one of which would be uh, your entry gate could be through our uh, critical civics workshop or our people practicing power workshop as we approach the uh, November election this year. Uh, the workshops all uh, gather gatherings, or are, are any of them uh, in the form of webinars? Or there are workshops that Highlander does that are webinars. I think most of what we do is still happening like virtually, just to make sure that accessibility is yeah. is considered. So, at at the very least, uh, a lot of the like educational workshops will be hybrid, if if nothing else. Okay, uh, so. Denzel, if I'm not mistaken, you are going to do critical civics virtually, even if you yeah, that's it. gonna that's probably gonna be hybrid, um, because that's gonna be gonna pick maybe three to five southern cities to do that workshop in. Uh, people practicing power will be completely virtual. That will be something that's gonna be sort of a mass education program. You know, we're gonna get announced that, put that out on the uh, social media, spreading that amongst comrades, and you'll be able to register for that. So. Mm-hmm. So, so we can subscribe to uh, to this. There should be a link that pops up on the website when okay. you visit the website. There should be a like, check out the view from the hill. And that link will help you like make sure that you stay informed about what it is that we have uh, coming up. Elizabeth Wright is our um, beloved um, newsletter wizard and ensures that like, those are pretty regular and also like super packed with information. So um, once you sign up for the newsletter, you will be getting information, whether it's from newsletters or e-blasts. If people want to learn more from Highlander, uh, more about Highlander, what do they do? If people are are enthused and thinking, wow, especially our Muslim community here that is getting out every week, to do some sort of thing and, you know, chant and beat the drums, but also beat their head against the the Biden brick wall. How can they find out more about uh, Highlander? So our website is highlandercenter.org. Highlandercenter.org. Yes. And we are all over socials. Um, We are on Instagram at Highlander Center, Twitter, Highlander CTR, and Facebook as well. We are... 
We try to be really intentional about making sure that people know what we are doing. But another thing that is really important as far as like social media and um, the website are concerned is that we make it a point to lift up the work that is happening around the South. Um, So it's not just us. It's also like, this is what's happening in Knoxville. This is what's happening um, in Kentucky. This is what's happening in Alabama. This is what's happening across the South. And we also have a newsletter that comes out on a bi-weekly basis. Um, and we make sure to let folks know uh, what's going on across the region there as well. So we highlight like actions. We highlight uh, projects that people are moving. If there are workshops that people can come to in person, if there are workshops that people can join virtually, we try to make sure that people have that information so that the work that is happening across the South, like larger and smaller orgs is is still highlighted and people still know like what's going on. But is there a place where people can donate? Oh, you can do that on the website as well. <laughs> mm-hmm. You have been listening to our conversation with Emma Cager Robinson and Denzel Caldwell from the Highlander. Highlandercenter.org. Go there, take a look, see where you can help them and they can help you. So as Emma has said, if the South does lead the way for the nation then we need to support Highlander in redirecting the direction the South is currently taking. With that, we have one more thing. We do end with a song. That <laughs> do, you, do you have a song that would go along with what we've been talking about? That uh... I, I do have a song that I think that I, I think y'all appreciate. So it's a Donny Hathaway song. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, it's, just, it's a song, Someday We'll All Be Free. Mm-hmm.